This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Back in 1994, a 13-year-old boy went missing in Texas. Three years later, he was found alive in Spain, but with a harrowing story of abduction and a pedophile ring. His family was overjoyed to have him back home safe, but things were not quite as they seemed. This is Apple for the Teacher, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Anna Thomas. Today's episode is called The Great Pretender. The missing boy was finally found, but was it really him? Just a note before starting, Apple for the Teacher does not name perpetrators out of respect to the victims. This is Carrie from her bed. This is the brick they girls. Matches. And everything else. She even got the TV in her room. Ain't she lucky? That's my sister. The birthday girl. Isn't she beautiful? And here is her brother, Nick. This episode continues the story of Nicholas Barclay. So if you haven't already, it's best that you go back and listen to part one in episode number 219. So we've seen so far that a homeless Frenchman spent his early life creating false identities in order to be offered refuge at children's shelters and homes in countries all over Europe. He pretended to be children who had run away from abusive homes or who had been held captive by pedophiles. He eventually accrued a criminal record for these fake impersonations, simply moving on if he was ever found out. Despite finally entering his early 20s, he continued this life on the run, pretending to be children much younger in order to gain sympathy and therefore a roof over his head. It was then in 1997, at the age of 23, when he would attempt his most daring deception to date. He was looking for a new children's shelter, so again he needed to create a new persona. He decided to make a fake call from a phone box, pretending he was a man who had found a very scared boy in the phone box. And as we saw in the last episode, the police arrived and found the boy who wouldn't speak. He was wearing a hat and sunglasses to disguise himself and he tried to act afraid, but they managed to get him to the police station. They asked him all sorts of questions, but he continued not to speak. With no success, the police were forced to take the boy to the children's home, but this was exactly what he wanted. When he arrived, they required him to have identity papers in order to stay at the home. So he was faced with a problem. What was he going to do now? That's when he claimed he was from America and that he had been abducted. Of course, just another of his fake stories. They wanted to call his family in America, but he wanted to do it himself because, of course, there was no family in America. 
So in order to give himself some time to come up with a story, he suggested that they allowed him to stay in the office overnight and call his family himself when the time zone was more appropriate. And as we saw in the last episode, they agreed. So there he was in the office overnight, desperate to come up with a story. And that's when he gets an idea not to create a fake persona, but to take the identity of a real person. So he sets about looking in the phone books in the office, and he found the numbers of various police departments across the US. He pretended he was the director of the children's home, who was trying to find out the identity of a boy they believed had been abducted from the US. So he asked if they had any missing children. To begin with, he had no luck until one police station suggested that he call the US Centre for Missing and Exploited Children. And that's when he hit the jackpot. He wanted to pose as a child of about 16. He knew that he could not choose a child who had gone missing too recently because he would have no chance of looking right. So he explained that he had found this American boy who said he was 16 years old and that he had been abducted in America about three or four years ago. He was given the name of a 13-year-old boy who disappeared from Texas three years earlier. The imposter then asked if they could fax him a copy of the boy's information. A fax then arrived with the details about Nicholas Barclay. He decided that this boy was perfect to impersonate. As he went missing three years earlier, he would now look different at age 16, and he was confident that he could pull off the deception. He had managed to be so successful in the past when impersonating younger boys because he didn't really look his age. He was just one of those people whose genes allowed them to appear younger than they really are. So there he was with a black and white fax of Nicholas, but he really needed a colour photo of Nicholas to see his hair and eye colour. He then requested if they could send him a parcel through the mail with colour photographs of Nicholas. And I don't know how long it took to get from the US to Spain, but it was addressed to the director of the children's home. And somehow the imposter managed to intercept the parcel. Looking at the photos of Nicholas in secret, he noticed that he had bright blonde hair and blue eyes, which was totally opposite to him. He had brown hair and brown eyes. So he started to panic and doubted whether he could pull off the hoax. But he then decided to dye his hair blonde and also just wear hats and sunglasses to help disguise himself. And he also came up with a story about his eyes, saying that the pedophile ring had injected dye into the boy's eyes to change their colour. He also read in the description of Nicholas that he had a number of tattoos. So he thought he would try to recreate that same tattoos on himself. And this is where he asked another girl who was staying at the children's home to do the tattoos for him. But of course, not telling her the reason why. Nicholas had three tattoos, the letter T on his left hand, the letter J on his left shoulder, and the letter L and N on the outside of his left ankle. So they were relatively easy to fake. Although everything about Nicholas was different to him, 
there was one detail which was surprisingly the same. The description of Nicholas said that he had a noticeable gap between his two front teeth, and lo and behold, the imposter himself also had a gap. So he finished his transformation and was happy with the result, confident that he could pull off the hoax. He then disposed of the photos of Nicholas and was able to give the authorities more information about himself. At first, he hadn't given them his name or any other details, but now he had the details of a real person. So as we saw in the last episode, the police in Texas are contacted and Nicholas's sister was able to talk to him on the phone. Of course, he was not Nicholas and he also had a French accent. So he had to try to say as little as possible. So he spoke in a very quiet voice in order to not give himself away. Then the day arrived when he would be reunited with his sister and he needed to put on a very convincing acting performance. He wore a hat and a scarf, made sure to look down and not make too much eye contact and tried to come across as very quiet and shy. And as she showed him the family photos, he knew he had to pay attention to all the details. The next step was to go to court to prove his identity so that he could return to the US. And when the judge asked him about the family photos, he was able to recall the details Carrie had given him. Although he did fail in one of the photos, but the judge was satisfied and he was given a US passport. Now, the strange thing about this was that the passport photo of him was taken without a hat or glasses. Didn't anyone looking at that photo realize he was not Nicholas? I have seen this passport photo and the hair dyeing wasn't done very well. You can see dark sections and his eyebrows were also dark and he also had dark facial stubble. So in my mind, if anyone had seen that passport photo, they should have realized it wasn't Nicholas. So we saw in the last episode how they arrived at the airport and he was bombarded with family and friends, of course, having himself covered up as much as possible. But much to his surprise, everyone fell for the charade. He then arrived at the family home and was shown around town, but he had to play dumb saying he couldn't remember much and of course they believed he was suffering from amnesia because of the trauma. However, his impression of the US was not what he was confronted with. He now realized that Nicholas lived in a small town in Texas, not a big city with many people. So from that point of view, he was quite disappointed. But as time progressed, he just couldn't believe that all these people really believed he was Nicholas. And of course, his biggest fear was that the real Nicholas would one day reappear to uncover his elaborate deception. Although he was very impressed with his efforts, as we saw, the suspicions of Charlie Parker and the doctor finally brought the ruse to an end. He was arrested and went to prison waiting for his case to go to court. However, this unreal story was now to take another bizarre turn. While in prison, the imposter made a startling allegation to the police. 
he told them he was adamant that the family themselves had killed Nicholas. He stated that when Beverly came to visit him in prison, she confessed to him that it was her oldest son, Jason, who had killed Nicholas. So how were they supposed to respond to this? After all, they knew this man was a serial liar. But after considering everything that had happened, could there be any truth to it? Did they accept the imposter because they could use him to cover up the murder of Nicholas? Were they reluctant to provide DNA because it would prove he wasn't Nicholas? Did Carrie turn up at the airport that day despite being told by the FBI that the boy was not Nicholas because they needed to keep up the ruse that the boy was Nicholas? After relaying this development to the family, not surprisingly, they said the imposter was lying as revenge for being caught out. When the mother was asked why she refused to give the DNA sample, her reply was, quote, To be honest with you, I really have no idea what I was thinking at that time. My main goal in life was not to think. The FBI concluded there was enough evidence to start a homicide investigation into the disappearance of Nicholas Barclay. Beverly was asked to undergo a lie detector test, which she agreed to, and she managed to pass the test. This surprised everyone because by this time they were convinced the family did do something to Nicholas. So they decided to do a second test, and again she passed. Bewildered, they gave her a third test, and this time she failed. But not only that, but she failed very badly. They then interviewed their older brother Jason, and he came across as very hostile during their questioning. And then not long after, he died from a drug overdose. This led the authorities to speculate that he did have something to do with Nicholas's disappearance, but decided to commit suicide as the police were now getting too close to uncovering the truth. But the family defended Jason, saying he had just been used as a convenient scapegoat and now wasn't able to defend himself from the allegations. While the investigation was continuing, the imposter was in prison awaiting a court date. Now, do you have any idea what he got up to in prison? We saw previously how giving him access to a telephone in the children's home turned out to be a bad idea. He just couldn't seem to stop himself and he began researching other missing children and calling the authorities stating that he had information about them, all of which was false. After finally going to court, he was charged with perjury and fraudulently obtaining a passport. He received a sentence of six years prison and then was deported back to France in 2003. But you won't be surprised to know that it wasn't long before he was up to his old tricks. Only three months after going back home to France, he tried to impersonate another boy who had been missing. Can you believe this man? And then when he turned 30 years of age, he tried again. He rang the police pretending to be a tourist and said he had found a 15-year-old boy alone at a train station who seemed lost and very scared. Sound familiar? He then took himself to a local child welfare office 
and gave them a story that his parents and brother had been killed in a car accident in Spain. He himself had been in a coma for several weeks, and upon recovering, he was sent to live with an uncle, but he had abused him. Finally, he told them he fled to France. The authorities found he had a mobile phone and an ID, which stated that his name was Francisco Hernandez Fernandez from Spain. He was placed into the St. Vincent de Paul shelter and enrolled at a secondary school. And remember, he's 30 years old at this time. The school had a policy that students weren't allowed to wear hats, but they made an exception for him after he explained he had burns and scars on his head from the car accident. At first, people noticed he was very shy and withdrawn, but he soon opened up, making friends and enjoying school life. One teacher would go on to say, quote, The students loved him. He had this aura about him, this charisma. But the charade came to an end when a teacher at the school saw a news report on television about a 30-year-old man who had spent years impersonating children and she noticed how similar he looked to the student at her school. She informed the principal who did an internet search and found many articles about this man who had been a master of manipulation, and there was no doubt it was the same person. So the police were called, and after removing his cap, they found no scars, only seeing a man who was going bold. He knew the ruse was up, and admitted exactly who he was. However, the authorities had a hard time trying to determine how to punish him. He was deemed to be sane by psychiatrists and not a psychopath, as some had speculated. So in this case, he was charged with using a fake ID and received a six-month suspended sentence. Not surprisingly, his impersonation of Nicholas Barclay far exceeded any other of his manipulations, and as a result, he became a media sensation. So much so that a documentary was made about him in 2012, not surprisingly called The Imposter. He appeared on camera narrating his story, with appearances from Nicholas's mother and sister, along with the FBI agent, and Charlie Parker. This documentary can be found on YouTube and it's what I used to tell this story. As part of the documentary, Charlie Parker visited the Barclay family home, which then had new owners. They agreed to have the backyard excavated, but nothing was found. The man went on to finally stop his impersonating and settled down to become a husband and father, and I was so shocked by this. In the documentary, you see him with his five children. As for Nicholas, nothing was ever found, and the case was eventually closed. And here now is some audio of Nicholas's mother and sister. We knew it was going to be, you know, heart-wrenching and, you know, but we never thought it wouldn't be him. You know, why would you even think that? The polygraph led us to believe that uh, she did have some information um, 
that she could provide that she refused to, and we felt like Jason had information. Well, if Jason did something to Nicholas, I didn't know about it. And I can't imagine Jason ever doing that. Just not in his makeup. But, um, I don't know. I know my brother or my mother did not kill Nicholas accidentally, on purpose, whatever f said, it never happened. It's kind of like a, a nightmare. All this stuff is coming at you and none of it's true. But nobody believes you, you know, or they think you have something to do with it. And it's, it's like getting in trouble for something you didn't do. And you know, kids, you, I didn't do it. You're going, yeah, right. But I didn't do it. I do feel like that the family knows the whereabouts of Nicholas Barclay. I think that Beverly Dollarhide and Jason Dollarhide knew at one time what happened to Nicholas Barclay. Just show me one piece of evidence. Show me one thing that will lock anybody in our family up over this. Just one shred of actual proof the biggest funniest one to me hilarious is that we went and picked up a complete stranger to hide the fact that we killed nicholas or someone in my family killed nicholas when through four years that nicholas was disappeared we were the only ones looking for him why would we go pick up a stranger to hide something that didn't need to be hidden Just another one of his lies. He's a habitual liar, and it blows my mind that anybody could take anything that is said out of his mouth as truth. He put us through enough already, and then for him to do this while he's in jail for what he's done and to cause more pain to our family, fuck him. Now, as expected, over the years, there has been much discussion about this man's psychology. I've never come across an impersonation case like this one. He says that he has done 500 impersonations, which I believe is a total exaggeration, given his ability to lie so convincingly. When he was assessed, they found no evidence of sexual deviance or paedophilia, and no financial motive was found either. As one prosecutor put it, quote, In my 22 years on the job, I've never seen a case like it. Usually people con for money. His profit seems to have been purely emotional. And another described him as, quote, An exceedingly clever man who posed as a desperate child in order to win sympathy. And also another described him as, quote, An incredible illusionist, whose perversity is matched only by his intelligence. The man described himself as follows, quote, As long as I can remember, I wanted to be someone, someone who was acceptable, but I never really accepted to be an adult. I am not a criminal. I am just a boy who will do anything that his brain knows how to do to get attention and love. My work is to get love. This is my work. I don't do drugs, don't kill people, rape children, 
I tell stories that will get people to care for me. This is my job. Later in life, people would say to him, why don't you become an actor? And he would reply, I think I would be a very good actor, like Arnold Schwarzenegger or Sylvester Stallone. But I don't want to play somebody, I want to be somebody. When asked about his mental state, here is what he said. Are you sorry? Yes, I'm sorry for my entire life. I'm sorry for my entire life. Who wouldn't be? I would have said that you were sick, mentally. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and there are still people who say I am. Are you better? Better? Are you better? I mean, if you concede that you were sick, are you, are you better now, psychologically? If I was sick at the time, I'm sick now. Lust, I was lost at the time. I don't think I'm sick. <laughs> so what are your thoughts about this story? The family certainly did behave strangely when confronted with the news that he wasn't Nicholas. So was this because they did have something to do with his death? Or did they just want so badly to believe that he was Nicholas? To me, it seems most plausible that he was on his way home and someone saw the opportunity to abduct a boy on his own. So that's the end of that incredible story. But to finish the episode, I thought we would finish with some audio of the real Nicholas himself taken from family videos which will allow Nicholas to have the final word. It's nice to meet you. I am Nicholas. See, ain't I beautiful? It's nice to meet you. It's nice to meet you. It's nice to meet you. See, ain't I beautiful? See, ain't I beautiful? See, ain't I beautiful? See, ain't I beautiful? Ain't I beautiful? Ain't I beautiful? Ain't I beautiful? Beautiful.